with a new subject matter. We decided to entitle it Seven. I don't know if you've seen the flyer on Facebook, but we decided to entitle it Seven. And we're going to deal with something, hallelujah, that a lot of people ain't talking about anymore. And, uh, but I want to talk about it. And uh, we're going to deal with what many refer to uh, in Christendom and in Christian circles as the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins. Uh, uh, these are separated from most other sins because these are considered uh, destroyers. They are destroyers of destiny. They are uh, particular things. Uh, many refer to them as vices that would try to keep a person from reaching their destiny. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And um, uh, I'm just going to go right in. Normally, I give you my scripture first, right? I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to kind of save my scriptures toward the latter part. Amen. And then I'm going to give you the scriptures because I'm going to try to teach a little bit. Is that all right? I figure my voice is not feeling very preachy today, so I'm going, I'm going to teach. I, we might preach a little bit toward the uh, latter half if we get there, but I, I want to really try to teach. Is that all right? Amen. And, and I encourage you to do your best to be here during this series because it's going to be good. It's going to be different, and it's going to be good, but I like different. I don't know about you, but I like different. Amen. Hallelujah. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer very quickly. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you, Lord God, and we render the service unto you. We thank you, Lord God, and we just ask you now to have your way. Speak, Lord God, through these lips of clay, Father God, and right now, word, minister, that the eyes of our understanding might be opened, that we might be able, hallelujah, to receive revelatory knowledge that comes from your throne, Lord God, hallelujah, that would help us to increase and help us to move forward, hallelujah, in everything that pertains to you, O oh God, and our destiny. And so, Father God, we thank you right now in advance for what you're about to do in this room, and we give you glory for it now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, let me be very clear in here that when I talk about the seven deadly sins, or what many refer to as the seven deadly vices, uh, let me just, uh, for the scholars that are in the room, I'm not talking about Proverbs chapter 6. There is a particular scripture in Proverbs chapter 6 that talks about there are six, yea, seven things that are an abomination unto the Lord. And it begins to list these seven things. That's not what I'm talking about. Those seven things are not just necessarily sins in Proverbs. They are categories upon which all sins fall under. Okay, I'm going to be a little more specific. Is that all right? What I'm going to talk to you about, watch this, is, is, is not found in one scripture, but you're going to find it all over the Bible. Uh, in other words, there's not just one place in the Bible that lists these seven things that I'm going to talk about. But as I get into these things, you're going to see how all of them are, are found all throughout scripture. The history, and I don't want to get into the history a whole lot because time is not on my side, but the history concerning uh, the seven deadly sins stem back all the way to the fourth century. To the fourth century. Uh, where, watch this, uh, Christian monks decided to, to imitate or emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as he was tempted in the wilderness, these Christian monks went unto the wilderness to determine what are the things that would try to destroy a man. 
And so watch this. Since then, since the fourth century, they came back with eight vices, eight, which later became seven. And, I, you know, uh, uh, Christian reformers, uh, Catholics, Protestants, and even secularism have adopted, even secularism has adopted the seven deadly sins. If you've worked for a corporation, uh, and you may have heard of it because they use it in corporations to, to talk about character building and ethics and how to maintain a certain kind of atmosphere in the workplace and they'll deal with these. Since secularism started using them, it's almost like the church has moved away from them. But as the church has moved away from them, they're still killing. They're so subtle. They're killers. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so I want to talk about them. Is that all right? Yes. Hallelujah, Jesus. I want to begin, first off, uh, with an illustration. I normally don't use a lot of movie illustrations, but how many of you are familiar with a movie uh, that's has been out for quite a while? It's actually old, uh, called Amadeus. Amadeus. It, it stems from a story from the 18th century uh, concerning a man named Mozart and another man named, uh, and I have a hard time pronouncing his name, Salieri. Salieri. And so if you've ever seen the movie, the opening scene is Salieri trying to commit suicide. He's trying to commit suicide. I'm not going to give you the first vice yet. I'm just going to lean right into it, okay? Uh, he's, he's trying to commit suicide because he can't stand living in the shadows of Mozart. He, 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 this is an individual, watch this, who had prayed to God that God would make him a great composer. And he told God, if you make me a great composer, I promise to give you my total devotion. And so here he is believing and aspiring to greatness. But all of a sudden, here comes this man by the name of Wolfgang Amadeus <laughs> Mozart with an amazing ability to compose. And so watch this, uh, Salieri is enraged, watch this, he's enraged that God would give Mozart this amazing talent because in his opinion, Mozart was arrogant, shallow, and he refers to him as a buffoon. And watch this, Mozart actually died pretty early in age, and when, when Mozart died, uh, Salieri still had aspirations to greatness. But watch this. His, here it goes, his envy. His envy was still being nurtured because even though Mozart had died, Mozart's music was still outshining his. And so he had such a hard time living under the shadows of this man that he tries to take his own life. But he was not successful. So now he's in a wheelchair. Stay with me now. He's in a wheelchair and he is playing the piano. And a priest comes to visit him to give him an opportunity to do confession. I guess he was a Catholic. And so watch this. The priest comes in and Salieri still, because he hasn't gotten over it, decides to test his own reputation. And so he tells the priest, do you have any musical background? 
And the priest says, yeah, I do have, I just happen to have a little bit, right? So he goes, oh, really good. So he plays a tune for him. And then he asked the priest, do you know it? And the priest said, nah, I never, I never heard of that one. And so he says, okay, and then he plays another one for him. Have you heard of that one? And he said, nah, never heard of that one either. And so he says, okay, so let me play another one for you. He plays another one for him. He never heard of it. Plays another one for him. Never heard of it. Plays another one for it. Now he's becoming a little frustrated. And now he's thinking to himself, this guy don't know nothing about music. Plays another one. The guy says, never heard of that one either. And so now he's frustrated, but then he determines, you know what? Let me play one more for you. And so he plays one more, and the priest says, huh? I know that one. And the priest begins to hum it. And he hums the rest of the song. And then the priest looks at him and says, I didn't know you wrote that one. And Salieri's face is red with indignation. His face is almost contorting. And he answers the priest back and says, that's because I didn't write it. It's Mozart. Are you in this place? And so let me ask you a question. Why are we envious? Whom do we envy? And why does envy lead to such destructive impulses? I heard somebody put it like this. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. When others have it better, I get bitter. Out of the seven deadly vices that we're going to be talking about, envy is the only one that is no fun at all. You know, they say that sin is pleasurable, but I'm going to submit to you that envy is no fun at all. And so I decided to start with this one first. Is that all right? Watch this. We use the word envy very loosely. Oh, yes, we do. We use the word envy synonymously with words like jealousy. Uh, covetousness, that's a real biblical word for you, covetousness, right, uh, and greed, amen. We use envy synonymously with these words like they're the same, but can I help you in here? They're not the same. They're not the same, and we do, and we use them very loosely. We, we will say things like, you know, oh, man, I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of you that you got to go on that cruise, and I didn't. Right? We'll say stuff like that. Or, 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 or perhaps uh, uh, one of you ladies will come up to one of your lady friends and say, I'm envious, you. I'm envious of you because you got that purse. I want that purse. I, I'm envious. Let me submit to you that envy is very similar to covetousness. Watch this. In that they both want something they do not have. So when we're talking about envy, we're talking about the have-nots. When we're talking about envy, we're talking about something that we lack, that another person has, that we want. Are you in this place? Hallelujah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Watch this. If you're greedy, it's different because a greedy person might be able to say, I want the same thing you have, and I might even want more of it. So watch this. A greedy person might say, I want the same thing you have and try to acquire it and try to acquire more of it. That's a greedy person. 
But a, a covetousness person, a, a person who covets and a person who envies, they're not interested in getting another one just like the one you got or more. They want the one you have. They don't want one like it or more of it. They want that one. They want the one you have. Are you in this place? But watch this. Does that mean that covetousness and envy are the same? No. There is a difference. Let me give you the difference between covetousness and envy. When you covet something, your focus is on the object. You are satisfied when you obtain the thing that the other person has. And as long as you have the thing, you are happy. Okay? Envy is different. Because envy doesn't receive satisfaction by obtaining the thing. Its focus is not on the thing. Its focus is on the person and making sure they don't have it anymore. So, so envy receives its satisfaction, watch this, watching the other person lose it. Even though they don't ever acquire it to themselves. They get more satisfaction, not out of the thing, but out of the person no longer having the thing. If you're blessed in here, shout glory. glory. Mm. Watch this. Covetousness and greed tend to focus on possessions. While envy is typically more concerned with who we are. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. So watch this now. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. And I don't have time to go to this text, but just write it down so you can read it on your own. 1 Kings 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, you're going to see a story about a, a king named King Ahab. King Ahab married to Jezebel. Bad, wicked people. Okay? I would say she was worse than him. So watch this now. King Ahab wants the vineyard that belongs to a man named Naboth. Amen? So watch this. He wants the vineyard that belongs to another man. And he comes up to the man, and this is what he says, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, hey, man, I want your vineyard. And I'll tell you what. I'll pay you full price for it. And if you don't want full price or if you don't want money, I'll give you a vineyard that's better than that one. But I want that one because it's next to my palace. And I want to use it as a field of herbs. This is what he told him. So my question to you is, is he coveting? Or is he envious? That's the question. And so based on the definition I just gave you, you should be able to determine which is which. What's his focus? Is his focus on the object? Or does he have a personal vendetta against this man? And when you look at it carefully, he, he's not envious of Naboth. He's all about the vineyard. His interest is in the possession. His interest is in acquiring the thing. And as long as he acquires the thing, listen, listen to what he says. I'll pay you for it. And I'll give you a better one. I just want the thing. And the man, you know, to make a long story short, the man told him, no, you can't have it. He said, uh, God forbid that I was to give my father's inheritance unto you. And he didn't give it to him. And the king went home, rolled over in his bed, and decided not to eat like a little child. His own wife came up to him and said, what's wrong with you? Are you the king of this nation or what? And you know Jezebel. Jezebel was wicked. 
I don't even want to get into what she did. You go ahead and read it on your own. But he was not envious. He was coveting that which belonged to another man. Can I give you another example real quick? Uh, here you go. King David wanted to have another man's wife. His name was Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. Was David coveting or was David envious? Careful. Careful. Remember how the story begins. He's walking the roof of his house and he sees her bathing. And so he's fixated on her. He's fixated on her. He wants her. He, he, he doesn't have anything personal against her husband. Her husband just happens to be one of the men in his army. And he is a faithful servant. But David is fixated on her. He wants that which belongs to another man, but he does not have a personal vendetta against this man. Are you following what I'm saying? He just wants her. Now, you might want to argue with me and tell me, but didn't he end up getting the man killed? Yeah, but he didn't get him killed because he hated the man. Nor did he envy him in any way because David's the king. And he's just a, a, a man in his army. Are you following what I'm saying so far? And so watch this. He was fixated on her. The reason he ends up getting the man killed is because she gets pregnant. And so now it's not about the man. It's about David's reputation. David's reputation is on the line. He, he don't need the rest of his men to find out what he did to one of his own men. And so he plots and he has the man killed. But at the end of the day, it's still coveting. It's not envy. Can I take it a step further? Envy's worse. Yeah, I'm going to let that sit in right there, hallelujah, for a couple minutes. But watch this. Why? Because envy targets the internal qualities that give a person worth, honor, standing, and status. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Watch this. And even if the envious desires an external thing, it's because the object symbolizes or signifies the owner's uh, level of greatness. Let me, let, me, let me deal with that for a second. Let me say it another way. There is a difference with you. Uh, there is a difference with you wanting a Mercedes Benz because you love cars and you, you love the driving performance of this particular vehicle versus you want a Mercedes Benz because you want to show up the Jones is your neighbor who just finished buying a brand new Camry. There is a difference. Are you in this place? In other words, it's not the car that makes you green with envy as much as it is you being the owner of such a car and what it says about you. Oh, cool. In other words, the personal respect and the admiration that you command and demand when you pull up in it or you drive up in that car. So watch this. You don't envy the car per se. You envy the superiority, the classiness of the person who drives that car. Stay with me in here. In other words, just getting the car is a means to that end. 
getting the right car is a means to that end, which is being the right person. It's deeper than you think. And not having the car is not just you lacking the thing. It's you seeing yourself as less of a person. It's you seeing yourself as deficient and defective. Are you in this place? And so watch this. The envious person's lack makes him feel less lovable, makes him feel less admirable, and less worthy as a person. And so here's what I want to let you know. Envy, now I'm going to throw jealousy in here. You still with me? Envy, like jealousy, concerns love between persons and ourselves. You with me so far? So we talked a little bit about greed. We talked a little bit about covetousness. I just mentioned some really good things about envy. Let me say something about jealousy before I move on, okay? Jealousy is the condition of you, watch this, loving something, then possessing it, and then feeling threatened, then that which is loved can be taken away. I'm going to say that one more time. Jealousy is the condition of you loving something and then possessing that thing you love, but then feeling threatened, then that thing that's loved can be taken away from you. That is jealousy. Can I submit to you that most human jealousy stems from a selfish and inappropriate claim to possess another? You hear what I just said? It's a jealous spouse who claims the other as his property. Especially if you're not married. Because at least when you're married, you come into joint ownership. It's not sole ownership of one person over the other. It's joint ownership. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But if you're not even married, you own nothing. Stop it. Amen, somebody. At the end of the day, only God can make a fully possessive claim toward another person. Only God who has redeemed you and purchased you with his blood can say to you, you are not your own. You are not your own. I've bought you with a price. Amen, somebody. Hallelujah. And so watch this. At the end of the day, the reality is simply this. that human claims of jealousy about another rarely are righteous. I said rarely are righteous. There might be, you know, case here and there where there is what I like to call a legitimate jealousy. But that is very rare. Amen? But here's what I really want to get at. Whether righteous or sinful, jealousy is like envy in the sense that it is always personal and it is always related to love. It's always personal and it is always related to love. Let me give you the difference between jealousy and envy. You ready? Watch this. The jealous are those who have something and are afraid that they might lose it. They are the ones who have something and are afraid that they might lose it. Watch this. The envious, by contrast, are the have-nots. They do not have the good that their rival has, nor do they have self-love. That's the whole problem with the envious person. They have poor self-worth. Stay with me. Hallelujah. Are you blessed so far? So because of that, they have nothing to lose. 
And because they have nothing to lose, they have everything to gain by another person's loss. Envy. And I know, I know, I know most of you are sitting up here and saying, thank God I ain't dealing with that. You better watch it. Envy is subtle. If I get to it, I'm going to show you through the scriptures how subtle and how it sneaks in. I mean, sneaks in unaware almost. Are you blessed in here? Let me give you my first point out of three points in this place. Throw my first one up there. The fuel of envy is comparison. It is the fuel. It is the gasoline of envy. You know you don't put the gasoline in the car, you ain't moving. Let me, let me put it to you another way. No comparison, no envy. It sounds easy, right? But it's so hard to do. So hard not to compare ourselves. We do it all the time. Christians too. We compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to other churches. We compare ourselves to the world. Always oh, getting quiet in the house of the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Watch this. The bottom line for the envious is how they stack up against others. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Uh, comparison is envy's accomplice. They work together. Are you following what I'm saying? I would dare say that comparison is a good instigator. It instigates. The Bible has a lot to say about comparing ourselves. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm going to give you the scripture in a moment. But envious people who compare themselves, watch this, are always annoyed at another person's good because it excels their own. They're always annoyed at another person's good because it excels their own. And because it excels their own, they get annoyed. Are you in this place, church? They see things through uh, different glasses. Uh, they, they'll look at stories even in the Bible. Watch this, like Jacob favoring Joseph or, or Rachel being prettier than Leah. And they'll determine that nobody in the earth is equally loved. Because they're different. That nobody's equally loved. Are you in this place? They don't believe that nobody is loved equally, fully, or unconditionally. They'll say stuff like there's winners and there's losers. There's those that are superior and there are those that are inferior. There are those that are more worthy and then there are those that are less worthy. Are you in this place? But where there is no comparison, there is no envy. Show me 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. I got to go fast. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 12. 10 and 12. 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. Hallelujah, Jesus. Watch this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. <laughs> That's a mouthful, right? In other words, what, what barometer are you using when you compare yourself to another person? You can't compare yourself to another person and just use yourself as a barometer. In doing so, you are not wise. Because you'll determine to yourself that this is fair and this is unfair when in all actuality, it is fair. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the parable of the talents, 
what does God do? He gives one of them one. He gives the other one two. He gives the other one five. Uh, an envious individual, watch this, will look at that and say that is unfair because they all should have got the same thing. But that's not true because we are all different and we have different capacities, we have different talents, and we have different abilities. So when you read the parable of the talents, watch this, the Bible says he gave to each according to their ability, according to their capacity. One individual might have a greater capacity than another individual. I might be a, 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 a five-talent man, and Wendell might be a ten-talent man. That would mean that he has a greater capacity than I do. For me to compare myself to him would be unwise. Because we do not have the same capacity. I just need to be concerned with maximizing my capacity and my ability. And if I maximize mine, in God's eyes, it's the same as him maximizing his. As a matter of fact, let me help you understand that some more. If Wendell's a 10-talent man and he only gets 8 talents, but I'm a 5-talent man and I get 5 talents, who did more? The one with 5. Because the one with five maximized his capacity. And the one who had greater capacity did not maximize his capacity. This is why comparing yourselves will lead to disappointment. Because we have different talents and different abilities. And I am preaching better than you saying amen. <laughs> Are you hearing what I'm saying in here? This is the problem that Salieri had with Mozart. He just needed to recognize that Mozart was more gifted than he was and be okay with that and at best try to emulate him. But he did something different. Are you in this place, church? Ooh. Salieri thought that Mozart's gift should have been his. But upon realizing that that would never be the case and he would never reach that, instead what the envious person does is he tries to ruin the other person. Because he feels that the only way he can get out from under the shadow of the other person is by bringing that other person down so that he can feel better about himself. Oh, God have mercy in here. Are you blessed? Can we teach today? In other words, envy targets another person's talents, their qualities that define who that person is. He thought being superior to Mozart is the only way he thinks he could cure his envy. And so it is with many people who struggle with envy. Are you in this place? The envious person is so unhappy with their self-analysis. Of their own worth. They feel like the only thing I could do to get up under this shadow is to sabotage the other person. Oh, it happens all the time. And so here's what they begin to do. They begin to belittle. Falsely accuse. Backbite. Backstab. Slander. Some of them are real cunning. And they use what is referred to as detraction. Uh, so what they'll do is they'll start giving a person... Who's great? Faint praise. Faint praise in an attempt to undermine them slowly by minimizing their greatness. Getting other people to see, you see, they're not that great. 
I'm up and coming. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And they rejoice in another person's downfall. Even in the case of a misfortune where they had nothing to do with it, but accidentally something happens to that person, they rejoice. But they rejoice even more if they were the engineers of it. Hallelujah. Are you blessed in here? Envy's view of the world, watch this, is antagon antagonistic. Antagonistic. Amen. It's always me versus you. Your goods versus my goods, but never both. Your goods, my goods, never both. And it's always me versus you. Are you in this place? One of the things that you need to know about an envious person is that an envious person, watch this, never, or let me just fix that. I would say rarely advertises their envy. An, envy, an envious person rarely advertises their envy. They're not going to say it out in the open. They shun open warfare. I said they shun open warfare because they realize that to openly admit that they are envious is to openly admit that they are inferior and that they are powerless. And so they determine, I'm not going to admit that to you <laughs> and I'm not going to even admit that to myself. Even though it pains me. And so what envy does is that it eats away at somebody from the inside. Like a moth that constantly gnaws at a garment. Envy consumes a man. I said it consumes a man from the inside. Are you in this place, church? How many of you in here have kids? If you have kids, then like me, you've had to watch your share of Disney movies. Pixar movies, amen. I must say, even at age 46, I have enjoyed a few. I have enjoyed a few. One in particular came to mind when I was studying this. I don't know why, you know, I rarely use illustrations like this, but one in particular came to me. It's a classic. I love it. And I just found out that they're making a sequel, and I am kind of pumped up about it. <laughs> and it is The Incredibles. You remember The Incredibles? I'm going somewhere. Stay with me and it's going to be good. You remember The Incredibles? They're coming out with a sequel. I was like, oh, right. That's a classic. And that one was pretty good, I must say. Uh, so watch this now. There's a, little, there's a young boy in this movie who went by the name of uh, Incrediboy. You remember that? Incrediboy. He, he won. It, it began as an annoying, because <laughs> he was annoying. Uh, desire of a young man to be Mr. Incredible's sidekick. You remember that? But Mr. Incredible kind of let him down hard for his own protection. Because he didn't have superpowers. He was somewhat of an inventor. But he had no superpowers. So Mr. Incredible let him down. But in letting him down, he exposed his inferiority. And his inferiority was now acknowledged. So what does he do? This is interesting. He launches a lifetime work of killing superheroes. Look at what envy does. It gets you to shift your life and live it in a direction that you were never supposed to live it. 
So he launches out into a lifetime work of killing superheroes because he's envious of superheroes. And so watch this. I'll never get out from underneath the shadow of supers because I have no superpower. So what I have to do is get rid of them. Are you hearing what I'm saying in here? So watch this. He spends, he spends tremendous energy making himself into an imitation superhero. And he builds this machine. You remember that machine? That only him through his own technology can destroy. Why does he do this? His idea, watch this, is that he's going to use this machine to go into the city to wreak havoc. And then he's going to simulate a mock battle where he uses his powers to defeat the machine in front of all the people so that he can finally look like a hero. Oh, God have mercy in here. And here was his rationale. Here was his rationale. If everyone can be a super, no one will be. But how many of you know that his plan horribly failed? And his pseudo superhero powers were exploited as second-rate fakery. Right? And here's what I wanted to point at. His inferiority could not be changed despite his best efforts. It could only be exposed even more painfully for all to see. Now that's Disney, but that'll preach. I'm going to give you my scripture. I'm going to get to the scripture. You, if you know me, you know I got scripture. Amen? Let me give you something else about enviers. They don't envy everyone. They only envy people who are like them, but better. Oh, God help me in here. I said they only envy people who are like them, but better. Notice, uh, incredible boy went by the name of Syndrome. Something like that, right? Right? And so watch this. He's not just after everybody. He's after superheroes. Because it's what he's always wanted to be. But he's not. And all of them are better than him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Oh, God, have mercy in here. You're not going to envy a musician if you're not a musician. You're going to envy somebody like you that is better than you. Are you in this place, church? Oh, God, have mercy. That's why Salieri envied Mozart, because they were composers. He didn't hate everybody. He didn't envy everybody. He envied Mozart, because Mozart was what he aspired to be. Oh, my God. In other words, we envy those we wish to surpass in reputation. Amen, somebody. Those that you see yourself taking the place of. Those who you could have been. <laughs> Are you in this place? Hallelujah. They want to be superior because what? Because for their self-esteem, their self-esteem depends on outranking others in the relevant field that they are in. Amen, somebody. And they do this through comparison no comparison no envy wonder what will happen 
if people could come out of comparison. The world would be a whole different place. But we can't help it. Nobody's saying amen. But we cannot help it. Amen, somebody. Their own identity hangs on excelling others. But only those who threaten that identity. I'm going to get up to my text in just a moment. Can I give you one more illustration that I thought was really good? Uh, just, just in case you didn't know, I'm actually doing some coursework on this subject in school. And so I figured it's so good. I said I might as well take some of this and share it with the congregation. Amen. I'm reading a book, just in case you're interested, called um, Glittering Vices. The book doesn't give you scripture. But if you know me, hallelujah, I get the scripture. <laughs> And so as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, my God, all this will preach so good. And the stories just start coming to me. And I want to get to them. So here, let's go. Hallelujah. Amen. Are you blessed in here? How many of you are familiar with the movie Chariots of Fire? Oh, I got 12 minutes. Chariots of Fire. Familiar with that movie? Watch this. There's something I want to grab from this that I thought was really good as well. It's two men, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams. For those of you who are athletic and, and like competition, hear this. They were rivals in the 100-yard dash. Rivals in the 100-yard dash. Harold, watch this, is driven by excellence, which is good, right? And he's devoted to winning because he's afraid. Or because he's afraid to lose. Are you in this place? And I, what I want to submit to you is that this is the envious person's mentality. Fear. Amen? And watch this. He's, he's been winning but after he loses his first race, his first race, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie. He loses his first race. He goes up into the stands and he hangs his head on his hands and he is dashed to pieces because he lost. And he says to the woman that he loves at the time, uh, if I can't win, I won't run. If I can't win... I will not run. And she, exasperated, answers him and says, if you don't run, you can't win. <laughs> I was like, good answer, girl. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Watch this. This is the envier's attitude. He is defensive. He is afraid. He does not like to be shown up. I said he does not like to be shown up. He's only happy with himself when he outranks his competition. Are you hearing what I'm saying? His identity and worth depends on him being better than the rest. Amen. Liddell, the other individual, is totally different. Nothing like him. Watch this. He's explaining to his sister in one scene, watch this, that he does not, rule, he does not run to prove something. I said he does not run to prove something, but from an already possessed sense of rest in God. That's what he says. From an already possessed sense in or rest in God, I run. And he says, when I run passionately, I feel God's pleasure. Oh, that's a word for somebody in here. When I run passionately, I feel God's pleasure. Not when I win. When I run, are you in this place, church? 
Oh, God. In other words, he's already sure of God's favor. He said, <laughs> he said I'm already secure at the starting gate. Before I take off, I know who I am. Oh, my God, have mercy in here. Watch this. He loves competition, not because he loves to win, but because he loves to run. Some of us like to win. Some of us like to run. There's nothing wrong with winning. Amen. Run to win, the Bible says. But love running. Hallelujah, Jesus. Are you blessed in here? The other individuals, watch this. The other individual's love for himself was contingent on his performance. Oh, I could get into grace and law right here, and I can preach, but I'm not going to do it for the sake of time. Listen to what it says. His love for himself was contingent on his performance. But the other one already knew he was a child of God, which meant he started from a winning position. And no matter what place I fall in, I'm good. Ah, are you blessed in here? That's why the other one runs with joy and freedom. And the other one runs with fear. If you're blessing here, shout glory. Point number two, with eight minutes left. Let's do it. Envy is the enemy of love. Ooh. I said envy is the enemy of love. Watch this. Love is to seek others good and rejoice when they have it. Love is to seek others good and rejoice when they have it. Envy is to seek to destroy others good when they have it. <laughs> Are you hearing what I'm saying? Love is to seek others, goods, others good when they have it. Envy is to destroy others' goods when they have it. Are you blessed in here? This is why I believe Jesus gave us the greatest commandment, which was number one, to love God. Watch this now. And number two, love your neighbor. Oh, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to trample envy? God showed us how to do it. It is the enemy of love. So God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because envy is what gives rise to hatred. And hatred at its highest place leads to murder. It is the bitter fruit. Amen. When you envy, it becomes hard to love even people that should be easy to love. Oh, I wish I had more time. Genesis 37. I'm getting up to my scriptures. Genesis 37, uh, verse number 3. I'm going to have to skip some. Gen Genesis 37, verse number 3. I got to go through this quickly, guys. Watch this. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And listen, when the text here says that he loved them more than his children, I don't necessarily believe that he just loved them flat out 
uh, percentage-wise more than the other. But notice what it says. It says that he was the baby of his old youth. In other words, he was the last one he had at a very old age. So Joseph is the baby. And you know how it is for those of you who have numerous kids. Amen. You love them all the same, but there's something about the baby. You know, I, I have four children, but my six-year-old, he makes me laugh the most. You know, he, he, he brings me a lot of joy. And while I love all of them equally, he's my baby. You follow what I'm saying? But anyway, watch this now. Let me get the next verse. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. They, this is their little brother. They hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Which means that they couldn't even say a kind word to their own little brother. Because they felt like the father loved him more. Isn't it just like people when they see the favor of God on somebody? And rather than celebrating, they start hating. That's today's vernacular for envy. Hating. It's, it is the enemy of love. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Let me see the next scripture. And Joseph dreamed the dream. Then he told it to his brethren. And they hated him <laughs> even more. Somebody needs to tell Joseph, just be quiet, man. Just, just stop, man. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So they went from hate to more hate. Because he figured, if I'm going to share my dream with somebody, I should be able to share it with my brothers. Surely my brothers are going to be happy about my future, my destiny. Show me the next verse. Oh, I got to hurry. And he said unto them, here I pray you, this dream which I dreamed. And they start sharing with them the dream. Okay, give me the next one real quickly. Hallelujah. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood around, round about and made uh, obeisance to my sheaf. They bowed down to him. Next verse. Next verse. Next verse. Next verse. And his brethren said to him, Shall thou indeed reign over us? Or shall thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him. Somebody get Joseph. Somebody just say, Come here, man. They hated him even more Next for his words. Next word. Next verse. And he dreamed yet another dream. No, don't say nothing. And he told it to his brethren. And he said, behold, I have dreamed a dream uh, more. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars made obeisance unto me. Next verse. I'm getting there. And he told it to his father now and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, what is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee in the earth? Next verse. And his brothers, and his brothers envied him, but his father observed the saying. Because his father was wise. His father knew there was something about that kid. He saw it on him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But I, I can't even get into the rest of the story. But the rest of the story basically goes on to say that from that day forward, his own brothers were plotting against him. 
His father, who's concerned and still loves the other brothers, says, hey, where's your brothers? They're out in the field somewhere. He said, go and bring them food. Go over there and find out about your brothers. And so he's looking for his brothers. He ends up finding them. And the Bible says that as he draws close to them, they couldn't even stand the sight of him. You know envy is at the core when you can't even see this individual. The very sight of him got them upset. And the Bible says that they saw him coming. They plotted, let's kill him. And then let's see what will become of his dreams. Envy. The enemy of love. They're supposed to love him. But they don't love him. Oh, my God. I, if I had time, I'd take you to Genesis chapter 4. It was my intention. Genesis chapter 4, we have another brother. His name is Cain. Any from, anybody familiar with the story? And so what happens with Cain and Abel? They bring, watch this, offerings up unto the Lord, right? And so one of them was accepted. One of them was rejected. This is just the reality. One was accepted because there is an acceptable sacrifice. And then there is an unacceptable sacrifice. So you can't sit here and have an attitude that says, God's just going to have to take whatever I give him because no, he don't. I said, no, he don't. And so watch this now. So he rejects the other, and then the other one's countenance falls. In other words, he got angry. And so God comes to him and tells him, why is your countenance falling? Don't you know that if you do well, you get what your brother got? I'm not choosing favorites. Don't twist this with your envious mentality. There's no favorites. You do what your brother did, you get what your brother got. But he told them, but watch it. Because sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is to have you. But you have to master it. Remember last, um, Sunday we said, watch this. You know that sin can't just bust through the door. Sin has to be allowed in. And in order to be allowed in, it needs agreement. I can't get into that. You were here on Sunday, right, when we talked about that? And God was warning him. But he envied. Watch this. He envied his brother's worship. Oh, my God. The Bible says that they had a conversation. And the Bible doesn't say what the conversation went, went, went how it went. But I could imagine the conversations, uh, Cain going up to Abel and saying, why you got to show me up, man? Why you got to show me up? You know, you know I can't sing like you. It was worship. You know I can't play like you. Why don't you tone it down next time so this won't happen again? And I can hear Abel saying, so you're telling me that I shouldn't give God my best? You're telling me that I shouldn't give God my best so that you could feel better about your subpar offering? And I could imagine Abel saying, man, stop hating. And that, but that's what it feels. That's probably what infuriated, the Bible doesn't say what the conversation went like, I'm just, but it infuriated Cain, and Cain killed his brother, someone he was supposed to love, church, someone who should have been easy to love, my brother, don't be hating on the way I go up, don't be hating on the way I worship, when I worship, I give God everything I got. You're going to get mad at me because of that? Go right ahead. 
but I'm going to give God everything I have. Show me Mark 15 and 10. Give me about five more minutes. I'll land this plane. Mark 15, 10. Hallelujah. Give me verse 11 first. Ah. Watch this. The Lord Jesus Christ is before Pontius Pilate. Amen. Remember, Jesus came to his own, and the Bible says that his own received him not. It is his own people that are screaming, crucify him at this point in the story. They want Jesus dead, who is one of them. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And listen, listen to what the Bible says. But the chief priests moved the people that they should rather release Barabbas unto them. And so uh, Pontius Pilate says, once a year, I release unto you uh, a prisoner. So he, Pilate's thinking, surely they're not going to say Barabbas because he's a murderer and he used to bully the people. And so do you want me to release Jesus or do you want me to re release Barabbas? And this is what I always say to people who always say, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven and have a conversation with Adam because Adam messed it up for all of us. And I always tell people, you know what? You would have made the same decision that Adam made. And here we go in the New Testament. Here you got good and bad. Here you have holy and wicked. And he says, choose. And they say, give us Barabbas. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And look, 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 look. Pontius is trying to make sense of the whole thing. And then it says that the chief priests moved the people against Jesus. Isn't that something? That my own people will turn people against me. Why would you do so? Why would you take the people? You're supposed to be my people. And then you take the people and move them against me, your people. Why? Verse 10, that's why. Show me verse 10. For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. These people were more concerned with status than they were a savior. They were intimidated by Jesus' success and his following. All Jesus did was succeed and his own people hated him. You want success? You better be ready with everything that comes with success. Because not everybody's going to be happy about your success, including your own people. If you're in this place, shout glory. Ah, Jesus, have mercy in here. Let me try to close. Secular philosophers declare envy to be a naturally human, to be naturally human and incurable. Listen to what secularism says. Envy is incurable, right? This is what they recommend. Trying to, you got to channel your envy or your envy's discontent into self-improving strategies. This is the best that you could do. What they do not see, however, is that the cure for envy requires getting out of the comparative game of engineering self-worth altogether. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You have to get out of comparison and determining your self-worth through comparison. This is why Facebook is dangerous. I wish I had time to get into that. Hallelujah. Because this vice is rooted in pride. 
you determine your own self-worth by excelling your rivals. It's a loser's game. I said it's a loser's game. You, even when you win, you lose. Because it destroys the possibility of love between you and others. And even between you and God. Are you in this place, church? You'll go as far as blaming God. That's what Salieri did concerning Mozart. He said, God, you gifted him more than me. I'm mad at you. And here's the bottom line. Relationships of love are the only thing that will truly make us happy. Relationships of love are the only thing that will make us happy. And so envy is the enemy of love. You walk in that, you'll never be happy. Are you in this place, church? Let me close with the last point, and I'll just say two things about it, and we'll leave. Envy has an evil eye. Ooh. Envy has an evil eye. You want to spot envy? Be mindful of how people look at you. Envy has an evil eye. Show me 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18 and verse 7. You guys doing okay? Hallelujah. I know the fast is over and now we, we want to go eat. Hallelujah. Just give me a moment. I'm land this plane right now. 1 Samuel 18 and 7. Watch this. You know what? Give me, give me verse 8. Give me verse 8. I'm going to come back to verse 7. Give me verse 8. Watch this. This is shortly after David killed Goliath. Okay? Everybody's excited about David because he's like the new thing in town. Amen? So watch this. And Saul was very, very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? Next verse. And Saul, what? I said envy has what? An evil eye. What? And Saul eyed David. From that day forward. Show me verse 7 real quick. I should have just showed you 7 first. But. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. I want you to see, and I'm closing, how envy just slided in. Almost unaware in this particular story right here. Everything was fine. Everything was going great. David kills Goliath. Saul said, man, this little guy is something else. Whose son is he? He finds out whose son is he, sends him back home for a while. Then he calls for him because this kid can worship. He's not just a warrior. He's a worshiper. And when he worshiped, the demons that tormented Saul left Saul. You know that's worship. You know that's powerful worship. When you play and you sing, demons got to leave the room. And so watch this. When David would play, demons would leave the room. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so Saul said, you know what? I need this atmosphere in my palace. So he said from that point forward, he didn't let David go home anymore. This kid has to stay with me. Now to make a long story short, he promotes David. Everything's going really good. He promotes David. David becomes the captain of Saul's army and he's leading Saul's army into victory after victory until this new hit song came out on the radio from the Israeli sisters 
called, watch this, called, you ain't the man no more. <laughs> so this new hit song hits the radio by the Israeli sisters called, you ain't the man no more. And you see it in verse 7. It says that when they came home from a particular battle, the women were singing and playing. And when they started singing, the song went something like this. Saul kills his thousands. David kills his ten thousands. And what Saul heard was, you ain't the man. No more. And the Bible said it pricked his heart. And in a moment, envy came in. In a moment, and the Bible, the next verse says, from that day forward, he eyed or had his eye on David. And just like with Joseph, I ain't got time to show it to you, but if you go to verse 12, and you go to verse 15, and then you go to verse 29, with every time David behaved himself wisely, the Bible says, Saul became more afraid. Oh, God, help me in here. And then all of a sudden, watch this. Worship, because of envy, worship was no longer a freeing experience for him. Before envy, David would play and Saul's demons would be gone. But when envy set in, worship wasn't a freeing experience no more. David played and Saul threw a javelin at David and tried to kill him. Three occasions all together. But on all three occasions, David escaped him. And I heard the Lord tell me to tell somebody in this place, as long as you behave yourself wisely, you will escape it. As long as you behave yourself wisely, you will escape it. David never took matters into his own hands. He didn't try to kill King Saul because he knew he was the next king in line. So he didn't go above his authority. He was under Saul. He said to himself, if Samuel anointed him, let Samuel deal with him. And Samuel did. Are you hearing what I'm saying? In this place. Worship team, come up here. I had some more stories for you. I really wanted to talk about Esther. And a man named Haman. Because the Bible says that, watch this, even though Haman was developing favor from the king, watch this, and he was gaining success and accolades, he could not stand the sight. Listen, I said, I said, envy has an evil eye. He could not stand the sight of Mordecai standing at the gate of the king's palace because he represented the Jews. And Haman hated, envied the Jews. And he, listen, he said, these are Haman's words. Check it out for yourself. Esther 5, somewhere around verse 13. Haman is saying, my God, I've gained this. He calls his wife. He calls his friends. He said, I've gained this. I've gained that. I have favor with the king. Look, Esther has invited me to eat with her and the king. Oh, my God. Look at that. How special I've become. He, he don't know that she's about to blow him up, but, but. Beside the point, he thinks that he's gaining prestige. I got, I've been promoted. And, but then he said, but none of these things avail me as long as I have to keep seeing Mordecai. And so watch this. Envy, it don't even matter how much success, how much accolades you gain. You just can't get over that individual. 
who also has favor with the king and has been given a prominent position in the city. And he says, nothing that I've gained means anything as long as that man, because he won't bow down to me. He won't recognize me. I walk by him, everybody else bows, he stands there. He says, I can't stand, I can't stand to look at him because envy has an evil eye. Are you hearing what I'm saying in here? Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's about to become the president of a whole nation. There's 120 princes, three presidents, and Daniel's one of those three presidents. And the king has been conferring to make him the head of everybody because he exceeded everybody in his wisdom because he was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says he had a different spirit in him. But when the other two presidents <laughs> heard it, rather than celebrating him, they determined we have to ruin him. We have to ruin him. And then after trying to ruin him, they concluded we can't find no fault with him. And so if we're going to catch him, we're going to have to catch him concerning, concerning something about his own law and his own God. And they, after watching him with that evil eye, they determined, you know what? He prays all the time. Every day at a certain time, he prays. And so let's send a decree to the king that no one should pray to any other God except the king for 30 days. He will not be able to do it. And then Daniel heard about the decree. And you were to think, oh, wow, let me lay low for a while. No way. The Bible says that he opened the curtains. You don't hear me. He opened the curtains to his place. In other words, that's to say, watch me pray. <laughs> and he prayed. And because of the treaty that the king signed, because once the king says something, he can't retract it. It's the difference between leaders today and kingdoms. In the kingdom, whatever the king says, that's it. Today they change laws like you change clothes. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so the king, like Daniel, didn't want to kill him. But he had to stick to his word. And so you know what they did? They threw him in the lion's den. They threw him in a den of lions. And then the king, who didn't want to kill him, said to him, may your God defend you. And the Bible says the king went to his quarters and couldn't sleep the whole night. Couldn't even eat. He was on a forced fast. You don't hear me. He was on a forced fast. Couldn't eat. Got up. Was the first one up in the morning. Ran to the lion's den. Had the stone removed. And said, Daniel! Did your king defend you? And all you heard was a voice that said, long live the king. <laughs> Listen to what he said. Long live the king. For God sent his angel. And the angel shut the mouths. This is why you don't got to get into no debate, no argument, hallelujah, concerning what they're saying. God shut the mouths of the lions. And then the very people. It's so amazing. Because when we talked about Haman, Haman built gallows for the Jews. 
and then he hang, he hung off the gallows he built. In other words, the thing that, that he built to use to kill those people ended up killing him. And then these people that got Daniel thrown into the lion's den, you know what ended up happening? The king said, get the ones that accused this man and throw them and their families. Because envy will not just affect you. And throw them in the pit. And the Bible says that before they hit the bottom of the pit, they were devoured. Before they could hit the bottom, they were devoured. Why do we envy? Who do we envy? And why does envy bring about such destructive impulses? It is a deadly vice. And comparison is the fuel. It is the enemy in love and it has an evil eye. Don't walk in it. Don't walk in it and you'll be free. But as long as you walk in it, you will never be free. Can we give the Lord a hand clap in here? Come on, give him a real good one, church.